Natasha Brown is the co-founder of Black Votes Matter, and she's talking about how activism is different for her than for the leaders of the 1960s movement. Brown was one of the people at the civil rights retreat I went to at Sunnylands in California this past January. The retreat was organized by Clarence B. Jones. You may remember him from earlier in this series as the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr.'s lawyer who smuggled out the letter from Birmingham jail. Jones is now 88 years old, and he organized this retreat to bring together civil rights veterans like himself, people like Andrew Young, Bernard Lafayette, Minnie Jean Brown Tricky, and others you've heard throughout the series. So we know we are the surviving members. Sometimes uh, I've heard uh, this religious term, disciples, used, which makes me uncomfortable, not because I'm not religious. Uh, Disciples of Dr. King's leadership. Jones called them to join together with the next generation of civil rights leaders like Latasha Brown for a specific purpose. I mean, I don't have to tell you. I mean, you don't have to come all this distance just to say, okay, we're going to celebrate Martin and so forth. No, 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 no. He wouldn't want us to do that. You know better than that. We got the deal. We, we got the deal with what's going on in this country based upon the experiences that we've had. Jones wanted these leaders to gather because all of the voices you've heard during this series, they're not going to be with us forever. And he wanted the gathered to send a message to the next generation, a message about what it takes to create change, or as Andrew Young put it. So there were all kinds of struggles going on in our midst. And the fact that we we are still hanging on trying Uh, is what what we have to say to these kids. I'm Jonathan Capehart, and this is Voices of the Movement, a series from my podcast, Cape Up, sharing the stories and lessons of some of the leaders of the civil rights movement and using them to figure out where we go from here. Andrew Young's refrain, what we have to say to these kids, was repeated a lot over the weekend. The implicit mission was clear passed the baton to the next generation of leaders. It drove every conversation. And the consensus was, it's not that simple. I'm not sure that it's a matter of passing on any baton. They've taken the baton. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I encourage them to take the baton. Who passed it? Harriet Tubman. Nobody passed it. Who passed it on to King? You're in a position, and so many times the students in the AU Center, and I said, look, they said, when, you, when are you all going to pass it on? It's passed on. Here it is. Take it. Go. This conversation happened between Claiborne Carson, the director of the Martin Luther King Jr. Research and Education Institute, and Reverend Gerald Durley, who was a student leader of the movement of the 1960s and is now pastor emeritus at Providence Missionary Baptist Church. I went to Taylor Branch for some perspective on what he thought about passing the baton. Well, it's a, it's a daunting task to think that if you had a baton, you could pass it. <laughs> 
Taylor Branch is the author of the Pulitzer Prize-winning book *Parting the Waters* and considered the authority and chronicler of America in the King years. But I do think that it is a useful exercise for these people who helped make a movement, or in my case, studied those people who were who, who had made a movement, to to think about what analogies there could be between now and then, even what is inspiring to people and, 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 and what is galling to people in this age, what moves them in one way or another, what enrages them and what inspires them. Because out of that is where movements come from. I mean, after all, a movement starts when you're moved. <laughs> and being moved in a, in a small way, um, a movement makes being moved in a small way contagious and grow un, until it actually affects history. And that, that's an amazing process. It's not that often studied, and you certainly can't put it in a can and hand it to somebody. Um, but I think it presumes that young people today are dissatisfied with our world and would like a movement. And the question is, what inspires them and, and what provokes them? And what commonalities are there with, with the era that these people here are remembering? The spiritual foundations on which all social change rests is basically said in what we said to redeem the soul of America from the triple evils of racism, poverty, and war. That's Andrew Young again. He told me that commonalities are found in what the next generation is fighting for and against. That's a comprehensive way to describe what social change is about. It's evolution toward a more perfect union, toward a better society, toward a, an end to hunger, and also to an environment that is not in the process of destroying the earth. I grew up in the 30s. And my parents, my father was active with the NAACP. My mother was active with uh, the Urban League and the YWCA in New Orleans, Louisiana. And um, when we came along, I ended up working with the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. Well, that was a different generational approach. And I think with the younger generation coming along, Everybody's talking about passing the baton. I don't think you, that's not a rational action. That's an inevitable evolution. That um, my son is not supposed to agree with me. <laughs> he, he just isn't. He, he knows a lot of what I know, but he just decided that, that he didn't want anything to do with politics or the church. Uh, he thought that the answer was business. And, and actually, that's what Martin Luther King said, that to redeem the soul of America from the triple evils of racism, war, and poverty. Well, some people have to go into business because government alone cannot end poverty. If Andrew Young is about the evolution of the movement, Minnie Jean Brown Tricky wanted the next generation to know that they are doing things exactly right, mistakes and all. Well, so when I came, uh, you know, I, there was supposed to be a discussion today, and I, I came to the conclusion that I, I would say they were just like we are. They're just doing what they have to do. And, and 
they're doing it and they're making all the mistakes and they're doing it right and they're getting all the criticism and they're being told that they don't have the right structure. And so it's a rerun. So all I could say to them is, it's complicated. Just keep, do what you think you can. It's complicated. I mean, I, I, I'm excited. Um, I would like to change things, totally. But if I can't change them, I like the effort to try to change them. There's something very um, exciting about that. And I've, I've been in things that we've had victories and things that have had horrible defeats. Um, but, in, but I've learned lots in the, in, in the process. I keep telling my kids, damn, I wish I could download this brain onto a disc. Because it's got a lot of stuff in there. <laughs> <laughs> so then, what do you admire most about the next generation? The way I think about it is, I do a lot of things with young people. And I say it's, it's an exchange of wisdom and energy. So they got the energy and they can go out and do things. I've got the wisdom and we can combine those two things into, into something really important. So, I mean, I kind of like, I think it's cool to be naive and think you can change the world. Because that's the only way you can. And... Um, and so they're not, well, everybody says they're jaded. But I don't think they know enough to be jaded. You know, that, that, that's, they're pushing it too early because they haven't had enough trials to be jaded. They can't, it's not fair for them to think that they're jaded now. There's so much more to come to give them reason to be jaded. So it's kind of like that... Um, doing the activism to work against the pessimism and to keep the sort of, I don't know if they're gonna go far and say optimism, but to keep the potential alive. Passing along this knowledge and keeping the potential alive is exactly what Clarence Jones wanted to do. There are many of us who were privileged to work with Dr. King, but the reality is I'm gonna be 88. <laughs> the reality is, uh, uh, those of us who worked with him closely, we're not going to be around in a few years. And we have a collective responsibility, I thought, that we should pass on some of the experiences. And let me state it as long as loud as I can say, as I don't want anybody to be confused about what I'm about ready to tell you. The theme of this is to redeem the soul of America, but to redeem it from the standpoint to let you know as we always, we love you. We love you. We love you. And we want you to succeed in whatever way you think is appropriate based upon successes, failures, and your own journey going forward. 
Passing on some of the experiences also entailed fielding questions, questions about all aspects of the movement, questions about power. There's a larger piece around, and I, w- I am interested in hearing from all three of you, like how do you see power? Power is peace. Okay. I want peace, and peace is um, bread on the table. So place to lay my head. Questions about empathy. I have questions regarding empathy. So it was part of the last point that was being mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do think we have a public health crisis oh, with yeah, right. this lack of empathy and this growing right. lack of empathy. Right. Um, so question that obviously doesn't have to be answered now. It can be answered later at any point. Um, but I'm wondering if you have any perspective, I'm sure you do many, um, on how we can actually increase empathy. How do you teach empathy? How do you get people to be empathetic to the point of modifying voting preferences? Because it's one thing for people to be like, oh, yeah, that's a struggle. You're right. That sucks. It's another thing for them to actually vote for a person that may not be in their best interest, right, by profit, by whatever, to support a cause of somebody else. So but Empathy is a very effective tool, a very effective, a very necessary tool. And uh, the, the challenge is that uh, there's a body of evidence, a, a, a legacy of experience. And... Uh, those of us who were fortunate enough to participate in creating that experience, we're just saying to you, well, let's, 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 let's sit down. We want you to take that experience. And, and you have some skill sets. You have some skill sets that we didn't have, you know, the media, the, the cell phone, all those things. You have powerful forms of communication. So it seems to me the challenge is how do you use those powerful forms of communication to deal with the question of empathy, to get people to really care about someone else's condition. Discussions about pragmatism and priorities. You know, I was thinking in in even our small group and and all the people in that room, and we had just half the people that were in the larger room, Mm -hmm. the the different places that they come from, the different causes that they're committed to, it's it's so all over. Mm -hmm. And they're all meaningful causes. But in some ways, in some ways, I think the civil rights movement... and, and forgive me because I'm a student of history and I didn't live the history, but from my perspective, in some ways, there was a concentrated focus um, that helped to give it direction and organization and, and bring people together and create coalitions. Mm-hmm. And if we think about this moment now and we think about what it is that we want to achieve, there are so many things that we feel radically passionate about that it, it's pulling people apart. And how do we start deciding where to put our energies yeah. in? Is, priorities. It, is it voting? Priorities. Is it, yeah, priorities. And, and, and how do you, I mean, that's a pragmatic question. How do you bring that together? Um, and and how and, and in some sense, can you think about civil rights in this moment? Is there a place for all the people who are looking for basic human rights? Is there a place for the undocumented immigrants? Is there a place for trans, lesbian, gay communities? Is there a place for um, people in rural communities? And and so, how do how does that all come together? Have you looked at the history of where African American people have come? We knew that we had to get the federal government. To protect us. There are observations made by the next generation that added new dimensions to issues that rang familiar to the civil rights veterans. What I'm always struggling with, as someone who's committed to nonviolence, is this notion that that like I always it's it's fine for some of us to be committed to nonviolence. The people who have to be active in order to move the freedom struggle are who we like to call Pookie and Ray Ray in the streets, right? They are young people. And 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 there is a fierce, um, I you know, 
I think what, what we're oftentimes wrestling with is like when I think about my dad's generation, my dad's 72. And so when I'm um, talking to him, they grew up out of a black church in the South where there was a shared ethic around certain ideals and notions, which is not necessarily present amongst this emerging generation. And so what I'm always trying to wrestle and wrestling with is uh, I feel it's my responsibility to figure out how we get young black people, young brown folks activated in pushing the freedom struggle. And I, I don't necessarily think that my generation, we don't know what we want. You know, a lot of people say we don't know what we want. We do. Generally, we want to live in a world in which we are no longer fighting to survive. Hello. You know? Yep. Hello. Internally, we have to figure out how we're going to get there. Externally, we have to figure out the vision and we have, and you know, we, ha we have to get there. You know, we're, we don't want to live in a world in which we want to survive, we want to live. We want to, we want to have an opportunity to thrive. That means, um, you know, access to healthcare. You said a moral right. I, I agree with you, sir. Healthcare, housing, education, you know, those are the things, you know, access to food, Clothing, so those are the, those basic, basic things that we... Yes. Right. And there were acknowledgments that there were still things to learn about King, about his life and leadership. You know, a lot of times we hear about the Dr. King from not just Montgomery, but from the <clears throat> I Have a Dream speech. And, you know, I think for our generation, and I can speak for myself, we have to do a better job of studying okay. King and not allowing people to shape his narrative for us. And so, you know, in hearing... Uh, but it was a, another gentleman in here that was uh, uh, was speaking about. Oh, I'm sorry. Then you go right there. All right. So we we spoke a lot about the sentiment of Dr. King and a lot of things that I didn't really think about. Like you know, a lot of times we 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 see all the accomplishments of King, but we don't realize that if there wasn't a Montgomery bus boycott, there may not have been a King as we know it. You know. And so I think for all of us, it's just being prepared. You know, because. For, for many of us, we've been doing this work for a long time and we might not, you know, the apparatuses are different. And I asked a question personally about the popularity of King before he passed away and why I thought, why he thought that happened. And, you know, we, we just had, we just really dove in to that conversation. And one of the things that he said that really stuck with me was that the agenda that Dr. King had taken on and embraced you know, in a sense, it was somewhat completed with the passing of the 64 um, Voting Rights Act. And what, what that means is that he came in at a time where there was a set agenda. And because that happened from 65 to 68, it was almost like we see this transformation of Dr. King. So I'm going to go back and study those three years of his life and understand it, because uh, there's a there's a lot that I think we can learn from each other. You know, the brothers and sisters that here that were alive during that time. Uh, you know, we really should just embrace what they have to offer. Over the last two months, you've heard familiar voices. You have to go back. You, have, you get young people and people are not so young to go back, to understand, to learn, to be inspired. That when they see something that is not right or fair or just, they too can do something or say something. 
you've heard new voices. And we show homage for the work that we are doing. Many of us get paid to do this work now, which you didn't get to get. You had to, you had to figure out how to rob Peter and pay Paul to march and work. You learn details about stories you know. That time I stuck them in my pockets and under my shirt because they were in different piles. But over the next few days when I was bringing him paper and taking back what he had written, I would uh, take them and put them under my shirt. And you heard stories you hadn't heard before. I said, Miss C, we called her Miss C or Shirley. How could you do that? I mean, this man, first of all, he's running against you. (laughs) And secondly, he's running for president. Thirdly, he's a segregationist and he's trying to maintain the status quo that you're trying to change. And once again, she shook her finger at me. She said, little girl, she says, come on now, you're working with me in my campaign, helping me. She said, but sometimes we have to remember we're all human beings and and I may be able to teach him something, to help him regain his humanity, to maybe make him open his eyes, to make him see something that he has not seen. You've heard how the commitment to achieving equality is deep. So, I mean, you don't get it. It's a life sentence. That's my thing. All this activism is a life sentence. You do not get it. I'm looking at these people, these older people. They've been doing this their whole lives, very quietly. You don't get away. It ain't over. And it's kind of cool. And purpose-driven. I remember he used to say that, uh, you know, some of us are not going to make it to 40. He said, but if we make it to 40, we can make it to 100. Well, he didn't make it to 40. So it becomes me almost an obligation for me to keep doing whatever I can do as long as I can do it. And I'll be 87 in another month. And I don't know whether I can make 100 or not, but uh, you can't waste the experience we've had. Most importantly, you've heard how this commitment spans generations and how the voices of the movement remain as clear and vibrant and resolute as ever. Thank you so much for listening to Voices of the Movement. Creating and sharing it has been an honor. K-Pop will return in a few weeks. Voices of the Movement was produced by Carol Alderman and edited by Jessica Stahl. Special thanks to Allison Michaels, Becca Clemens, Edgar Ramirez, Ambassador David Lane in the Annenberg Retreat at Sunnylands, 
Clarence B. Jones, Jonathan Greenberg, the Institute for Nonviolence and Social Justice at the University of San Francisco, the Faith and Politics Institute, Joan Mooney, Congressman John Lewis, and all of the voices you've heard over these last nine episodes. We never could have done this without them. Thank you.